<laughs> Julia is here, and if you would like to, uh, the children meet her to get your Bible bags, you're welcome to do that. All the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts of the Apostles, the history book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 17. We're going to start with the 22nd verse and go through the 31st verse. The Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke, the physician. We'll talk more about that next week on Ascension Sunday, the last Sunday of Eastertide, as we study the first chapter of the, of the history book of Luke. One of the more fascinating moments in recent years is the attempt of people to live the Christian life without serving the Christian God. To have a church with all the obvious benefits of belonging to a group of people who share life, who gather out of love for one another and love for the Creator, who have wonderful holy days, these holidays that we celebrate together, and we have this wonderful life together. They want that, but they want to do it without any obligation to the God that brought us all together, and that causes us to have life in this shared way. And of course, if there is no God, then there's no obligation to study what God says and to teach you about a meaningful and fulfilling and satisfying life so that you understand who you are and whose you are and, and what life is. And, and you, you have this gathering, but no, um, no philosophy, theology, purpose uh, given to us. What I'm describing, of course, it's come in various forms throughout the, the, the time. It, it comes in different clubs and organizations that attempt to, to have that. But one of the most fascinating, I think, is the new First Church of Atheism. Now, besides confusing the use of the word church in their name, which by definition means there is a Lord... And there is a God who brought this group together. That's what the, the name means, as you can see. And he brought us out of the world and into his wonderful care. So their, their non-sequitur name literally means God's people of no God. <laughs> I also found statements like this on their website, very enlightening. They said, you may become a legally ordained minister for life without cost and without question. Now, leaving alone the whole idea that they would want to be an ordained minister and what that means, it was the last part of that proclamation that taught my, caught my attention, without cost and without question. Really? Without cost? Without question? They're referring, of course, to the fact that you can just contact them and it doesn't cost anything and they will make you an ordained minister within the civil law of our land. And they won't require any kind of training or preparation to do so. They're not even going to ask you a question. If you want to be a part of their church, you can just do so. Now, all of us as Christians who are a part of the priesthood of all believers know that there is a cost and there is an accountability in the life of Christ. In fact, we know from uh, psychology, from history, from literature, if not from religion itself, that a life worth living always has a cost. 
There always is something that you have to pay to live that life, whether it's education or experience or effort or simply hard work, the cost of that, or faithfulness to have a true and, and great and rewarding marriage and so on. All that is meaningful in life has a cost and it has an accountability. There has to be a trustworthiness in a person, a, a, an ethical, reliable, truthful person in order for us to be able to even live together in the same house, alone have the same shared community and we can trust people to not pull out a gun and kill us on our streets. These are Christian words that they're using. Church, ordination. To use them without Christian meaning is nonsense, non sequitur, doesn't follow. It's not logical. It empties it of its value. It would be like someone, you can imagine seeing this on the internet, where somebody is offering you a medical license online without cost and without <laughs> question. How do you know then the physician or the ordained minister has paid the cost and is prepared and able to do the work that that license or ordination implies? But even granting all of that, and uh, we could talk for a long time about all of that, the deeper question that I want us to explore together today is why would atheists want to mimic something so antithetical to their belief than Christian community? What is it that they realize is missing from their own lives that causes them to seek what God created on the earth? This gathering of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the ones that live in community with God and with one another. What is it within them as a human being that would cause them to want to have that when it's so opposite to their, their belief system? Another way of asking the question would be, is there something inherent within a human, within our human nature, that causes all of us to seek what God creates. This life of God. This church of God. The ecclesia. Now the Greeks to whom Paul is speaking in our text were anything but atheists. Everyone believed in God. For them the question was which God? Was it Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, Artemis, Hades? Or was it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had taken this community of people on a 2,000-year journey that was now climaxed in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. What is your choice going to be? To address this question, Paul uses their own poets. He uses their own statues, their own religions. He points to an awareness that they have that there is a God beyond the gods of their pantheon, an unknown God, a God beyond their concept and their creation of what God might be if we humans were to create that God. As we read this, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. If Paul were here today, how would he address this universal longing of every human being to know the unknown God. To have a church. 
how different or how similar would our text be today if Paul were standing in front of the Washington Cathedral and speaking to American culture or if he were standing downtown and speaking to the Santa Barbara culture. How different would his sermon be today and what longing would he identify that we have that is fulfilled in Jesus the Christ? So we're going to uh, look to this history of the early church to Acts chapter 17 Verse 22 through 31. Luke is writing and he says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him. From the dead. Now keep that open before you as we study this sermon by Paul. Father, we're so thankful that Paul gave these words to the people of Greece and that Luke recorded them and gives them to us. And we recognize that we are not in ancient Greece, we're in the third millennium in the United States. We need to know how we fulfill our proclamation in this, our generation, our day. We each one come to you this morning in, in real humility, recognizing that we need your guidance. And we would ask that you would use Paul and that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us and that we would then have the opportunity to give your message to our world. Be with each of us. Help us have the eyes to see when and how and where you want us to speak for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. On the sixth Sunday of Easter, 
as we celebrate how the world has changed because of the resurrected one. We have been seeing how the resurrection is proof of the love and the life and the way, the truth of who God is in this world and in our lives. The resurrection is a proof of a love and a power that is more powerful than death itself and that it is something that is offered to you and offered to me through this one who came to give life. Death is not the final word and God is not far from us. But in a world that is seeking, but they're not seeing and they mimic rather than experience the real thing, we come back to the question, if Paul were preaching today in a world that longs for the unknown God, even though they might not know that's what they're longing for, what do we say? As I looked at this sermon by Paul, it seems like he gives kind of three steps to this process. And it would be, of course, uniquely applied as you talk to a friend or a neighbor or if you're talking in a, in a group of people. But basically, he says, these are the three things. Accentuate the longing for the unknown God that you see in the culture in which we live. Second, identify this longing then for the creator who made us such that we have this longing and that all things, creation itself, is pointing toward this one that gave us life and breath and allows us to exist. And third, he explains what happens when we substitute other gods for the creator God. It will not only put us in bondage to temporal things, these temporary things that are around us, the gold and silver and stone and that is a part of the physical temporary world, but it will also put us in separation from the eternal things, for we've anchored ourselves to that which is passing away rather than bonded ourselves with the love that is eternal. And the final judgment of that separation will be a true, a true judgment. So let's start with the first step. How do we accentuate the longing for the unknown God that we already see in American culture? How do we proclaim the truth about which our culture is only partially aware? How do we accentuate what they do know to help them know what they don't yet know? or who they don't yet know. Well, I would suggest that one of the things to do, and this is one of the reasons that I write movie reviews, is to take the poets and the artists' own words and to help people recognize the longing that is within and behind them. One of the uh, uh, plays that became a film is called Rent, and it has a, a different message to it, but one of the things I've loved about Rent is their theme song, and perhaps you've, you've heard it. 525,600 minutes, 525,000 moments so dear, 525,600 minutes. How do you measure, measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles, in laughter, in strife, in 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year 
in the life. How about love? How about love? How about love? Measure in love. Seasons of love. From the ancient world to today, this longing for love is the most pervasive desire of human life. Our theology, the theology of Christianity, is the theology of love. Because as Christians, we know that God is love. I think too often we have made the church about something other than God's love. If we model our proclamation after Paul, then we want to speak of and live out of and express continually the love that God has, not only for us, but permeated throughout the world within us, such that we live together in love and we care for one another. We long for love, but instead we worship love instead of the God of love. As theologians remind us, God is love, but love is not God. And if you worship love instead of worshiping the God who gives us love, we twist that in an inverted form. God created love, and it is his very nature, and it's therefore our nature. So I would encourage us that if Paul were here, I think he would talk about love a lot. He would talk about the longings of human life, the longings we see in our films and our artists, the longings we see in our music. We want relationships. We want time together. We want meaningful bonds. And that's a reflection of God's desire to love us and to care for us. And so that leads us then to the second step where Paul identifies the source of our longing as being a longing for God, the creator God, the one who made the world and everything in it, the God who gives life and breath and everything else, the God who did this so that his, create, his creatures created in his image will seek him and reach out to him and find him because he's never far from us. It's interesting that this longing for love is matched by the core awareness of the sacred nature of nature itself. There are many examples of this in the world's languages, the modern environmental movement, the languages and religions of the world, that nature is sacred. There's a life force. There's something that permeates creation itself that's larger than creation. Although the, the modern form of atheism is that there is no creator of this sacred nature. There's nevertheless something within every human being that says there's something supernatural, spiritual about nature. It's an awareness that every human being, so when they see the, the beauty of a sunrise or the sunset or the ocean or the mountains, when they see the beauty of the animals and the creation or something within us that that is greater than just some sense of of, uh, of shared planet. It's an awareness that there's some life force and that we share together from the Creator. Life comes from life. Beauty comes from beauty. And to worship the temporary, temporal, physical things of this world is to separate ourselves from the one who is life and who is love, who is eternal. And that leads us then to the final point 
of the proclamation. That we are to explain what happens when people do substitute gold and silver and stone for the living God. To worship the temporary is to misunderstand the true nature of life itself, both our own life and the shared life and the life force that permeates all of nature. It's not about this world's gold. And it's not about human skill. It's about a living God whose love and life is eternal and that changes everything. A while back I came across this painting that shows the moment of creation by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. But it changes it, as you see, where the hand of man is not reaching out for God, but rather it's putting up itself to keep God out of his world and his life and his existence, to live atheistically with no God. Now, when we live with no God, then anything can fill that vacuum and we can make almost anything our God. Gold and silver and stone and all the other pleasures of life and difficulties. I've had many conversations with people over these many years of ministry. And I've talked with people of all kinds of faith and of people of no faith who claim that, that they do not believe in anything beyond this world. Whatever they call themselves, whether they call themselves a humanist or an atheist or an agnostic or a New Age practitioner, as I talk with them, I do not experience their position as a crisis of evidence, as a lack of proof. But rather, they are putting their hand up and not wanting God in their life not in any meaningful way, not in any obligatory where they would ask you a question kind of way. They don't want that. And they want to, in fact, be their own God, live their own life. And so they shut God out. And they shut him out for a whole variety of reasons. That you cannot, in any meaningful way, say why people don't follow God. It's so unique and, and uh, protective of their own uh, desires and longings. It's to these people that Paul suggests we make this simple statement. Your longings are given by God to be satisfied by Him. He created you to live His life and anything else or anything less is to miss that for which you are created. Let's encourage everyone that we know in whatever uh, relationships we have that they are far overbuilt for this world and that this world's temporary existence cannot be the meaning of life. That there's so much more to love than the experience and emotions you have when you're in love. That there is love that permeates all of nature and all of creation and all that we are. And that when you're in that relationship with God and with others, then there is meaning, there is fulfillment, there is purpose, there is direction, there is guidance. And as we follow that, we experience the fullness of life, abundant life, a love that does not end. As we spend time with God, think about 
and ask yourself, Father, when someone comes across my path, you want me to have this kind of conversation. Give me the eyes to see and help me remember the words of Paul and help me be able to live as your witness and messenger. Let's spend time with him.